Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 1, says this. Judge not that you, may, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, when we get up in the morning, go to the mirror, look into the mirror, we recognize that what is looking back at us is a reflection of ourselves. We don't get up in the morning and look in the mirror and look at the disheveled hair in the mirror and think, oh my gosh, someone has broken into my home in the night. We recognize that's a reflection of ourselves. Um, that's called self-awareness. We recognize that, you know, we exist, that we can see ourselves in a mirror. Animals don't usually have that, and uh, most animals don't, and even the few that, that have that need to learn it. And so when you put a mirror with animals, things get kind of crazy. Uh, so I have a video here of some chimpanzees who are introduced to a mirror, so check out what happens. So, of course, the, the uh, chimpanzees don't recognize that the image is a picture of themselves. And, uh, you know, chimpanzees are actually one of the, the animals that they say can learn self-awareness, but they don't have it innately. Um, if you do, you know, just type in a search in, in YouTube, like animals and mirrors, you can see some hilarious things with cats. And I saw one with a chicken. The chicken is just kind of, the rooster thinks it's attacking another rooster. You know, they don't recognize that they're fighting a reflection of themselves. Um, if you were to ask 9 out of 10 young outsiders, people who are not a part of the church, what do you think about the church? 9 out of 10 people would likely say the church is judgmental. Uh, and that's just the reality of how a lot of people think. And I think the truth is we are judgmental sometimes. And uh, the, the truth is, though, I think it's, it's not so much that we're more judgmental than the world, it's we're judgmental like the world. We live in a world that's very judgmental. Uh, for example, what would you think about a person who killed another human being and committed adultery? What would you think about someone like that? Uh, most people would think, well, that person should be locked up for the rest of their life, you know, throw away the key, they, you know, they ruined someone else's life, they're done, there's no hope for them. But you think about that, and King David actually did those things, and the Israelites considered him the greatest king in Israel's history. You think about things that people say. You know, if a public figure says something that's inflammatory, uh, whether it's uh, racist or misogynistic or sexist or whatever the case may be, oftentimes those people are erased completely from kind of the public consciousness. There's no questioning of, like, what did that person mean like, did they really mean what they, you know, what it seemed like they, they were saying? Or if they did, like, can they change? There's no forgiveness. There's no grace. If someone does something, it's like we, we erase them from the public consciousness, cancel them, so to speak. We live in a very judgmental culture. 
And it's really no surprise because, you know, in the kind of our capitalistic society, that's kind of how it operates. You know, we judge goods and services, and, you know, if goods and services are good, then, you know, they survive and flourish, and, and you know, money goes into them. If not, then they go out of business. And, and so we're constantly judging, and sometimes we transfer that over to other people. And so I think people say the church is judgmental, and it's true, and we have a problem with, with judgmentalism, but it's not so much that we're more judgmental than the world, it, we're judgmental like the world. We're just like the world in casting judgment. And, and I think maybe the reason that people think of the church as being judgmental is not because we're more judgmental, it's because of the things that we're judgmental about. Oftentimes it's moral issues that we're kind of judgmental about. And it's not so much that we're, you know, judgmental and that we're judging things that the world likes, the world appreciates. But let's say you had a Democrat that was going to a Donald Trump rally. You say a Democrat goes to a Donald Trump rally and this Democrat sees all of these people that have MAGA hats and all this stuff. And the Democrat goes up and says, you know, starts telling people how bad Donald Trump is. What kind of response would that person get? Probably not a very good response. They, they, they might get beat up. They might get ostracized. But it's not so much that they're judging someone. It's who they're judging. If they were to say the, you know, the same things about Joe Biden, they might have a, more of an audience. And, and so it's not the judgment. It's who they're judging. And I think in the same way, it's, you know, in the church, it's not so much that we're more judgmental than the world, but we're like the world in that we judge, and oftentimes we judge the things that the world enjoys, the world loves. And so I think we really have a problem with judgment in the church, and Jesus says clearly in this passage, he tells us a few things about judgment, but the first thing he tells us is, do not judge. Now, before we kind of go there and talk about this problem with judgment, I think we need to talk about what judging is and what judging isn't. Uh, holding a, a biblical view on morality is not being judgmental. To hold something to true, to believe God's word about certain issues, is not to be judgmental. For example, to believe that stealing is wrong is not judgmental. But if I were to tell you, I, I believe you were a thief, you can't change, you're going to hell, there's no hope for you, that would be judgmental. And so having a belief on an issue is not being judgmental. Being judgmental relates to a person and our beliefs about a person rather than a beliefs about morality. So that's just kind of an aside before we kind of talk about this problem with judgmentalism in the church. And I think that we all struggle with this. You know, not just, you know, the church in America, I think that we all have this tendency to be judgmental. And really, what are we talking about when we're talking about judging other people? It's really about taking the place of God. And I think sometimes we take the place of God and we say, we judge other people by saying, I'm better. We say, I'm better. Uh, I, I know someone who's kind of on the fringes of the Christian church and kind of the fringes of Christianity, not a strong believer. And in conversations with him, he's kind of talked about how Christians are kind of people who think that they're better than everybody else. And that's often kind of the image that we portray is that, you know, we have all the answers. We figured it out. And really, that's not the image of Christianity that we should be portraying. We're all sinners in need of grace. 
And somehow along the line, the church has become a showroom rather than a hospital. The church has become a showroom rather than the hospital. And you think about it, and where would you rather confess your struggles? Or where would the world rather confess their struggles? In a church or in a bar? Most people would rather confess them in a bar than in a church because in a bar there's no judgment. They find more acceptance often in a bar than in the church. Uh, One writer said this, The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is for the fellowship Christ wants to give his people. It's an imitation dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but it's a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It's unshockable. It's democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. The church has become a showroom rather than a hospital. In a showroom, everything's tidy, everything's neat, everything's beautiful. In a showroom, we come and we pretend like we have it all together. We pretend like we don't have any struggles. And oftentimes, we're hiding behind our insecurities. The church has become a showroom. We pretend like we have it all together. We can't show any weakness. The church is for the religious, the spiritual. Uh, I've had so many times, you know, people... I've interacted with, and uh, they don't know that I'm a pastor. You know, and they'll be using some, you know, swearing and stuff like that, and then they find out I'm a pastor, and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I I shouldn't use that language around a pastor. And I'm like, I I don't care. Like, you are who you are. You know, it doesn't matter to me. But people have this idea that, like, if you're a part of a church, it means that you have it all together, that you don't struggle. That you have this appearance of, of, of righteousness. And, and oftentimes people see through that that we don't. And, and, and the truth is, you know, we have it all wrong if we're viewing the church as a showroom. The church is a hospital because all of us are broken. We might be broken in different places, but we're all broken. And, and there's one thing that we should agree upon is that fact that we're all sinners. We're all in need of grace. Pastor Matt is a desperate sinner and desperately in need of Jesus each and every day. Patrick is a desperate sinner, desperately in need of Jesus. Kim is a sinner in need of Jesus. Jesse is a sinner in need of Jesus. All of us come together. This is a hospital. We're broken in different places, but we come together with the acknowledgement that we all need Jesus. So we, we don't need to come together and, and have a show and pretend like we all have it together. Pretend like we're better than the person sitting next to us or better than the person across the street. We all are broken. We all need Jesus, just like the person across the street needs Jesus. And so we can't take the place of God and say, I, I'm better. I figured it out. I'm better than that other person. It's maybe not as far along. And if we're judging, we're doing that. We're saying that I'm better. I have it, have it all figured out. Another way we judge is by saying, I know. I know what's in a person's heart. And there's only one person who judges the heart and knows the heart, and that is God himself. We don't know what's going on in a person's heart. Sometimes we can see the outward sin, but we don't know what's going on in their heart. We don't know the brokenness that they face. We don't know the challenges that have gone on in their hearts. We don't know what's going on. Sometimes we can only see the outside. 
And sometimes when we assume that we know we can get ourselves into trouble, we assume that a person is a certain way, and oftentimes we're dead wrong. Uh, Author Todd Rose makes the point that our tendency to make false assumptions or fall into what he says calls collective illusions can result in mistrust, discouragement, and error. He writes this. He says, if I asked you to personally define the successful life, which of these answers would you choose? A person who is successful if they have followed their own interests and talents to become the best they can be at what they care about most. Or a person is successful if they're rich, have a high-profile career, or are well-known. So think about that. I mean, what would be your answer to that? Then think about the second question. How do you think other people would answer that question? Well, there was a study that was done among 5,200 people, and they were asked that same question. And most people believed uh, that A was the answer that, you know, they choose, that, that that was the most successful life, to choose A. And most people believed that most other people would choose B. So 97% of people chose A as kind of their ideal successful life, but 92% of people said other people are going to choose B. So, you know, I have this righteousness, I have these good motives, but other people don't have those good motives. Uh, Ross con- Rose concluded, he said, we learned that a large majority of people felt that the most important attributes for success in their own lives were co- qualities such as character, good relationships, and education. But those same people believed that most others prioritized comparative attributes such as wealth, status, and power. And that's just to show that we we oftentimes don't have any idea what's going on in someone else's heart. So to take the place of judge and say, and say, I'm better than this other person, and I know what's going on in their heart, is to take a place that is only reserved for God. And Jesus says, if you're going to do that, if you're going to take the place of God, if you're going to feel like you're better than everybody else, if you're going to assume everyone else's motives, then, then God is going to treat you the same way. And so there's a stern warning there that if we judge, then we also will be judged in the same way. And so Jesus clearly says, don't judge. And he goes on from there and says, you know, talks about there's times when, you know, maybe we feel like we need to point out sin in someone else's life. And actually in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus kind of gives, you know, one of the ways that we can do that, a principle for doing that. And so there are times when we need to confront a brother or a sister in Christ who's maybe doing something wrong. But Jesus also tells us that we need to be cautious when we do that. We need to be cautious about correction. And he's going to uh, talk about this using humor. And oftentimes we kind of miss kind of the humor of, of the things that Jesus says. Sometimes he says things that are kind of hyperbole, hyperbole and he says them just kind of to be funny, to illustrate a point. And he's kind of talking about the, you know, the location of kind of the workplace, the wood shop. And if you're in a wood shop, you know, if, you're, if you've ever sanded anything or uh, cut wood or anything like that, there's a lot of sawdust. So it would not be uncommon for you to get a little bit of sawdust in your eye. But what he does say is not very common, is to get a plank in your eye. It, it, that's something that doesn't usually occur in the workshop. And so Jesus says, you know, you're in the workshop and you see your neighbor has a speck in their eye. And here you are, you've got a plank in your eye. And you're trying to figure out 
that speck in your neighbor's eye. I mean, it's, it's meant to be hilarious. It's meant to be funny that you would have this thing sticking out of your eye that, of course, is going to be really painful, that's going to occlude your vision, and here you are trying to figure out what's in your neighbor's eye, this little speck. And so Jesus warns us that we need to be careful about correcting others. And the point is not that we should never correct others. There's times when we need to correct our brother and sister in Christ, but we need to do it with the right attitude. It's not the correction that's the problem. It's sometimes the way that we approach it. And and Jesus shows us that if we're going to correct our neighbor who's dealing with something in their life, we need to deal with our sin first. And the first reason we need to do that is we need to deal with our sins so that we can see clearly. If you've got a plank in your eye, you can't see in your neighbor's eye. If you've got sin in your life that's just occluding your vision, you can't pick out what's happening in your neighbor's life. Sometimes maybe that thing that you see as sin in your neighbor's life, maybe that's really sin in you. If, sin, if you've got this plank in your eye, maybe you can't see their sin correctly. Or, or maybe as you have this plank in your eye, you're looking around and you think that sin is in one place in, the, in, in another's life, but it's really in another. And so we can't see clearly, we can't really be helpful to another person if sin is occluding our vision, if we've got that plank in our eye. If you go on an airplane, uh, they always tell you that, you know, in the event that they lose oxygen, the mask will come down, and what do they tell you? Make sure you put it on your own, yourself before you put it on, you know, if you're with a child, before you put it on the child. And it's kind of counterintuitive because your inclination would be like, help the vulnerable first, but they tell you that because they know if, if, you, if they lose you, if the parent goes down, the child is probably going to be lost as well. And the same thing is true. We need to, to make sure that, our, that we deal with sin in our lives. We need to make sure our vision is clear if we're going to help those around us. So we need to deal with our sins so we can see clearly. We also need to deal with our sins so that we have credibility. We don't have to be perfect to be credible. The world is not looking for perfection, but the world is looking for authenticity. <clears throat> if there's a log in our own eye and we're pointing out the specks in other people's eyes, no one is going to listen. There's hypocrisy there. You know, it's, it's kind of like the obese heart surgeon that tells you need, you need to lose weight. It's true, but it's not credible. And if we're going to be heard, if we're going to make a difference in other people's lives, we need to make sure that we deal with the sin in our lives first. We need to make sure if we're going to be critical of others, we need to be critical of our own hearts first. And we need to also make sure that our motives are clear. Why are we looking at the speck in someone else's eye? Are we looking at it because, you know, maybe it helps us feel better about ourselves? Like, yeah, I've got this plank, but at least I don't have this speck. Or are we looking at it with a heart of love, saying, well, Christ has, has changed me, and, and I don't want this other person to struggle like I've struggled. I don't want them to experience the, the pain of sin like I did. So we need to make sure our motives are clear. And, and finally, we need to deal with our sin to have compassion. People who don't see the sin in their own lives often have impatience towards the sin of others. If we feel like I've got it all together, I don't have anything that I struggle with, I don't have any sin, then maybe we feel impatience towards the sin of others. And so we need to deal with our own sins, recognize that we're all sinners in need of grace. We need to realize that we've been forgiven. 
And as we realize, like, I used to have a plank in my eye, and Jesus in his grace took that plank away, then there's no room for judgment. There's no room, I'm better than you, or you're better than me. It's God has changed me. I want him to change you as well. And so we need to deal with the sin in our own lives so that we can have compassion on those around them and show them the grace that we've been shown. Jesus says as much as he tells a parable in Matthew chapter 18. It goes like this. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found, out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant so I had, as I had mercy on you? In his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. When we for realize all that we've been forgiven of, there's no room for judgment. Correction with the heart of love, yes, but there's no room for judgment. We're all on the same playing field. We're all in need of Jesus. And so Jesus says, don't judge. Be careful about correction. And then he closes this passage and kind of counters this. And, you know, and I don't think he wants us to go to either extreme. He doesn't want us to have this idea like, okay, I'm not going to judge, you know, just, I'm going to just treat everybody the same, and, you know, I'm not going to ever think about people's motives or actions. So he counters this kind of with a corrective at the end to kind of show us that we have to have a little bit of balance. And he tells us that we do need to use discernment. We don't judge, but we do use discernment. Look at what it says in verse uh, 7, or verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. <clears throat> now, in the ancient world, when we think about dogs and pigs, these are two unclean animals, you know, and we love, you know, we love dogs in our culture, but it wasn't like that in the ancient world. There were some people who had pets, but by and large, dogs were kind of wild scavengers, and, you know, they were kind of mangy, dirty, wild, and it, uh, there were often um, stories that were told of, of dogs just kind of eating weird things. They just eat anything, even uh, eating human blood in, in some cases. There are also stories of people who had fed dogs and then the dogs had turned and growled at them or even bit them. Um, and then pigs also were unclean and pigs were known for eating everything. And uh, I used to have a potbelly pig when I was growing up and it's, it's mostly true except for some vegetables that you know, the pigs won't eat. Uh, but you know, they're talking, Jesus is talking about you wouldn't throw something that's valuable to a pig. And what he's really talking about here is using discernment. Um, and discernment is different than judgment. You know, we're called to be wise. We're called to not to judge other people, to assume their motives, but we are, are called to be wise. 
And, and what's the difference between judgment and discernment? I think the difference is this. Judgment is legal and personal. Discernment is practical and purposeful. Judgment is legal and personal. Discernment is practical and purposeful. So here's an example. Uh, let's say that a person moves next to you who you know is a known thief. Now, it would be judging that person to say, okay, that person is a thief. They're never going to change. They're a terrible person, and I should try to get them kicked out of my neighborhood. And that would be a judgmental thing to do. A discerning thing to do would be to make sure your car is locked. Make sure your doors are locked. Make sure you keep your valuables contained. One is personal, one is legal, the other is practical and purposeful. And I think the same thing is true in the body of Christ. Christ calls us to discernment. Um, there are some people who are not worthy of us sharing our hearts with. There's some things, some people that we shouldn't share our secrets with. You know, sometimes there's people that we know that's going to tell everyone about, you know, our struggles, who are going to maybe condemn us for those things, who are not um, open to hearing the Word of God. Uh, there's some people, on the other hand, that we know that are not open to correction. You know, we, you know, we could pour out our hearts, even if we do it in the heart of love, and, and we know they, they don't have any desire to change. And so Jesus tells us, you know, we need to be careful, too, that we are discerning. It, it, we judge, we don't judge, we don't take the place of God, but we also be cautious, be careful. And uh, the other thing I think about discernment as well is discernment is always tentative. You know, judgment is kind of final often, but discernment is tentative. You know, maybe we're cautious in certain circumstances, and, you know, that cautiousness is open to change. You know, we're discerning, we're wise, but we don't put people in boxes. We still allow God to move. We still allow God to change people, even if we're cautious about particular situations. And again, we shouldn't hold ill will towards these people as well. I love the way that Oswald Chambers put, put it. God never gives us discernment in order that we may criticize, but that we may intercede. He doesn't give us discernment to criticize other people. He gives us that so that we can intercede for them. And usually when it comes to discernment, it's not so much we're trying to discern other people's sins, but we're, that we're trying to avoid troublemakers who would cause harm to the body of Christ or cause harm to us and our families. And so Jesus kind of counters this warning about judging, being careful about discernment uh, with this balance of, yes, you, sometimes you need to use discernment. Sometimes you need to be cautious. But with that being said, with that caveat in place, Jesus again is clear. We're not to judge. We're not to take the place of God. And we have a problem in the church in America with judgment. And, and oftentimes the way that it portrays itself is in gossip and criticism. That's the way it often rears its ugly head. It takes the form of gossip and criticism. And sometimes we think of these things as small, that we, you know, these are just things that we're talking about. Or, you know, maybe the things that we're saying are, are true. You know, we're not lying about somebody else. They're, they're true things that we're saying. And yet they can be so deadly to the body of Christ. Uh, in a leadership podcast, author Stephen Mansfield compares how barnacles slow down sea vessels to the effect of gossip can have on an organization or church. Some of the things he discussed about barnacles. Barnacles can slow down ships by as much as 40%. Barnacles can get inside engines and can be added uh, or, or, and can cause the engines to fail. 
They can be added to the weight of the hull. Barnacles can crack the hull of smaller vessels. Barnacles diminish the aerodynamics of the boat. The number of barnacles multiply rapidly due to the constant reproduction. The U.S. Navy spends $500 million a year to scrape barnacles off of their ships. Same things could be true of gossip. We think of them as kind of small issues, just talk, just words. They have the ability to destroy families, destroy churches, destroy organizations. St. Augustine would always encourage conversation at meals. But he had a strict rule that the character of an absent person should never be negatively discussed. And he had a warning to that effect carved into his table. John Stott put it this way, the secret of relationships with one another in the Christian church, especially when we have our differences, is Jesus Christ is Lord. To despise or stand in judgment on a fellow Christian isn't just a breach of fellowship. It's a denial of the lordship of Christ. I need to say to myself, who am I that I should cast myself in the role of another Christian's Lord and judge? I must be willing for Jesus Christ to be not only my Lord and judge, but also my fellow Christian's Lord and judge. I must not interfere with Christ's lordship over other Christians. It's so easy to put ourselves in the judgment seat. It's always so easy to think that we're better than the people around us. Sometimes it makes us feel better about ourselves. It's so easy to get caught up in the cycles of gossip, criticism. But these things can be so deadly. And really what it comes down to is how do we use our words? There's really only three ways that we can use our words. Either our words are caring, our words are constructive, or our words are sinful. Those are the only three options. They're caring, they're loving, they're constructive. That doesn't mean that we don't say hard things. Doesn't mean we just, you kind of let, let live and don't, don't say anything hard. Sometimes we need to speak forcefully. But when we do so, we speak so in a constructive manner. Our words are either caring, constructive, or sinful. There's no other option. And really, it's so simple when we think about it. Simple as a phrase in the Disney movie. Phrase from Thumper and Bambi. If you don't have something nice to say, then don't say nothing at all. It's so simple. It's so easy, in a sense. But so hard to put into practice. The devil loves to, to put his tentacles, to put his barnacles in his church. To get us to start judging our neighbor. To get us to feel like we're better than the people around us. Rather than being open to correction. Rather than realizing, yeah, my neighbor need to, may need to fix some things in his or her life. But Lord, I know i got to fix some things in my life first. Jesus, I need you to forgive me. I need you to change me before you change my neighbor. And when we have that mindset, there's no room for judgment. The, 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 the barbs in the enemy disappear. The barnacles fall off. And we're able to fulfill the mission that God has called us to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're a good and perfect father. We thank you that you don't judge us like sometimes we judge those around us. That even though you are better than us, even though you are perfect and righteous, you choose to love us, you choose to forgive us, and you choose to change us by your grace. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that though each and every one of us at times have had planks in our eyes, 
For those of us who are believers, we thank you that you've removed those things from our eyes. Lord, help us to live lives of purity before you. Help us to deal with our sin first. Help us to never forget the truth that we're all desperate for you, that we're all broken, that no matter how far we get in the Christian life, we'll never move beyond your grace. Lord, help us to never forget your cross. Help us to never forget the love that you have for us. Never to forget the fact that our sin sent you to the cross. But also help us to never forget your forgiveness, your incredible grace, that when we repent of our sins, that when we put our faith in you, we can experience life, that we can have a new hope, that we can be forgiven and offer life to those around us. Lord, help us to live in that reality, the reality that we are sinners, that we'll always be sinners, but you've saved us and made made us new. Take away the barnacles that the enemy has attached to churches, Lord. May gossip, may criticism, may judgment melt away as we focus on you and your grace and run after all that you have for us in Christ. Lord, we love you. We look forward to what you're going to do. In Christ's name I pray.